Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 19th, we're studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Christ has walked the path of our redemption in order to bring us to God through the saving gift of holy baptism. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Brain. Delighted to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context. We're at the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. What do we need to know going into this text? Well, the prior section had been um, dealing with, with the Christians suffering for doing good um, and, and always being ready to be to give a, an apology for our faith, a defense for our faith. Um, and so there's an emphasis upon our our behavior, our conduct as Christians. Now, what's pretty remarkable is that if we're if we're going to talk about having a, a defense for our faith um, and for the hope that's in us, what would be more perfect than having a creed that we could use for that? I always use this in in youth and adult catechesis. Look, apologetics is not complicated. Defending your faith is not complicated. If somebody asks you, what is, what is it that you believe in? Say, I believe in God the Father who created me. I believe in God the Son who redeemed me. I believe in the Holy Spirit who sanctified me. And um, so, so uh, you know, Christianity is very simple. It's very difficult, and there's, there's going to be suffering involved and, and challenges. But in its essence, it's quite simple, your catechism. Why would you why would you classify this text as a creed? What what is about what is it in there that you would say is creedal in nature? Well, it just it just sounds like the heart of um, the apostles' creed. So it, it it kind of has that pattern, right? Christ suffered for sins to bring us to God, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Then he also we have a descent into hell. Um, and then we have an emphasis on baptism. And the early church creeds really, um, they're not made up, right? <laughs> they're, they're derived from Scripture. They are, are texts taken out of the Scriptures, put together to provide a succinct summary of the faith that allows a person to make a confession before they ba- they're baptized. And that's the original context for the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed is built off of the baptismal creeds, and it, it ultimately is— um, it comes out of church councils because what they're trying to do is clarify teachings about who Jesus and the Holy Spirit are and defend the truth against heresy. Um, and so, so, but, the, but the original creeds were shorter, more to the point because they were, uh, centered around baptismal catechesis, preparing people for baptism. Where else in, in scripture do we see examples of creeds, something akin to what Peter does here? I would say in the book of Deuteronomy, we see a creed. Um, you know, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and so on. And then the Lord called him back out of slavery. So that's an example um, of, of I, I believe, a creed. I could also, you know, there's that poetic interlude in Genesis chapter 1 
where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I mean, that's not a creed per se, but it has this structure to it that is set apart and focused upon highlighting the importance of humanity as the crown of God's creation. Because, of course, the Word's going to be made flesh and dwell among us in the incarnation. Um, and we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now, um, in the New Testament, I would say uh, most notably uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Um, you know, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, you know, he, he humbled himself, made himself nothing, though he was equal to God. And therefore, he's been exalted. And at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and tongue confess. So I'd say that's the most striking example. There's there's quite a few others, though. Sure. When you said Deuteronomy, I thought you were going to go to Deuteronomy chapter six. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Oh, the, yeah. The yeah, Shema, right. as it's is called often, is it seems creedal in nature. I, and there's another place in the Old Testament. I think it gets repeated multiple times. The Lord... Our God is merciful and gracious, yeah. slow to yep. anger, abounding in steadfast love. That has a, a very creedal yep. nature to it. And even in the New Testament, I think you could say the simple statement, Jesus is Lord. Oh, yeah. Is a, a creed as well. I find it yeah. striking Cur- that. Curios Jesus, that's the fundamental creed of Christianity. I find it striking that that you get one from Peter here, the, the confessor from Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asks his apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the one to speak up. And here again, we have Peter doing the same thing. Again, as you said, right after he's called upon us as Christians to be able to speak a word to anyone who asks, mm-hmm. to, to confess that faith, here is something that he's going to give you to confess that faith. And I do love, uh, you mentioned earlier how Peter has been emphasizing quite a bit the emphasis, the conduct and the behavior of Christians. And and he really, he goes back and forth seamlessly between law and gospel throughout this sure. epistle. And here's another example where he's he's been talking about, you know, how you live as a Christian, particularly in your suffering. And now he's giving you something to confess, but that same thing that you confess also is meant as gospel for you. Yeah, absolutely. This also really ties in nicely with the very beginning of the epistle, um, where he talks about how we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, so, so there he introduces uh, the, the resurrection of Christ, but here he's going to specifically tie baptism in um, to that death and resurrection. What's the horsepower behind your baptism? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's fantastic. I really think that that this text, he is bringing together a lot of things that he's talked about throughout and will continue to talk about after this text. You know, he brought up the resurrection of Jesus from the get-go there in chapter 1. In chapter two, when he was going through the table of duties and speaking to various Christian stations in this life, he really emphasized the suffering and death of Christ as the example for us. So he's at, at various moments, he's he's used both parts of Christ's work for our salvation. And here he really, again, seems to bring it together in this creedal way, tying all these things together. I, I find this to be a, a center for the epistle theologically, thematically as well. I agree. I think it's it seems to be the the center. By the way, this is interesting too. Um, if you look at Luther's small catechism and its chief parts um, as the the fourth, fifth, and sixth parts uh, about baptism, confession, and absolution, keys, Lord's Supper, falling under the third article of the creed. So if you if you approach it that way, because they are they're the means of grace, right? They fall under the third article. If that's the case, then the the, the catechism is basically Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer, with the sacraments put under the third article. And if that's the case, then the second article 
is the center of the catechism. So that's one way of thinking about how the heart of our faith is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Um, and, and that's, that's always at the center. Right. Everything else is a, an explanation and expounding upon that truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's all a drawing from that center. Peter's going to put some flesh and bones on that confession for us today. We're in first Peter chapter three, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That's the text for today, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. Very much a step-by-step text here, one thing after another that Christ has done. Baptism's right there in the middle. Plenty to talk about today, Pastor Ross. So let's just start at the beginning. Christ also suffered once for sins. Take us into how Peter kicks things off. Yeah, it's interesting um, that phrase to to suffer for can have a couple of senses in the, in the scriptures. So um, you know this one is parallel to what Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen that that Christ died for our sins. That is, he died to pay for our sins. However, when Paul says in Romans five Christ died for us, it has more the sense of in our place. So here. And in First Corinthians, I think what Paul is, what what both uh, authors are getting at is that Christ is the payment for our sins. He he suffers the the due, the punishment for our sins. Um, and 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 in other cases, Christ actually becomes our complete and total substitute. So these are related concepts, but they're two different ways of getting at the atonement. That that He's actually our our substitute dies so that we don't have to die. But he also pay- makes that payment necessary with his holy, precious blood and innocent suffering and death so that I have nothing to pay. I have no debt that I owe to God. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. What, what about what I mean, is there a, what about the connection between the, this text and the previous text? Peter has just told Christians it's better to suffer for doing good than for yeah. doing evil. Is there and we saw Paul. Peter do this back in chapter two with is there an element of Christ's suffering as example or the maybe the prime example of what he's just said in verse 17? Oh, absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, Paul does this too in Philippians 2 when he's talking about having a mind of humility and thinking better of others. He goes into the description of Christ humbling himself. So, um, so likewise, I mean, perhaps we as Lutherans don't emphasize enough Christ as our example, as the pattern for our lives. But you can't read the New Testament without that screaming off the page. Mm. Um, and I think what we're probably maybe a little bit resistant to is, you know, the what would Jesus do type mentality of wearing the bracelet and constantly wondering what would Jesus do in this situation? And, you know, what's interesting to me about that particular phenomenon is that I suspect it becomes rather moralistic. Well, Jesus would be pure in this case. But I always like to point out what would Jesus do? 
I think he would suffer. Yeah. Well, I think he would suffer. And, and that's, that's what we as sinners are, are least inclined to do is to, to bear suffering patiently. We don't have the patience of Job. But as our life is shaped by the life of Christ, it actually is shaped by the cross of Christ so that we can bear sufferings with patience. And, 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 and this is a profound witness to our Christian faith. When we are able to suffer persecution, rebuke, insult, and illness and suffering without complaining against God, but rather saying, Thy will, O Father, be done. He is making me more Christ-like. And I think that's that's been Peter's point for much of this epistle, is what would Jesus do? Jesus would suffer. And that's, I mean, that's what he's been, that's what he said in chapter two. That's what he's been saying here. And it is it is rather striking where Peter says, and this may not be the only spot, but it's right there on, on the page that I'm looking at, 1 Peter 3, 9, you know, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. You were called to bless in the midst of suffering. I mean, that's, we don't, we don't think about the call of a Christian, at least I, maybe it could just be me. I don't, I don't get the sense that a lot of Christians think, what is my call as a Christian? It is to suffer. I'm usually thinking of other things, but Peter's been saying this over and over again. Your call as a Christian is to suffer. It is. It, and it's an extremely um, uncomfortable um, to, to push out some of the implications of the things that are taught in First Peter. Um, I'm, I think that a lot of the stuff that is um, fought for today in the name of maybe social justice could be thrown into question by an application of the principles given in First Peter. That, um, you know, it's not our role as Christians to perfect society. Um, but rather to love and bear with one another. Um, and, and that's the exact opposite of what you see in a lot of, you know, circles today, vocal circles um, online and, and in, in the public sphere that are, that are crying for toppling everything. And the last thing in the world that Christ would have us do is topple things. Um, rather, he would have us bear with patience the troubles that come our way. And through our love, heap burning coals upon the foreheads of our enemies, mm-hmm. bless those who curse us. Uh, and, and this also, by the way, sounds a lot like what the Beatitudes say. Mm, yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, again, this is Christ as example, which Peter certainly has emphasized throughout. Here in our text, he is preaching a lot more, I think, Christ as Savior, not simply the one who suffered for you to set the example, but who suffered for you to forgive your sins, for sins, as you said. Now, he he adds to this Christ suffered once for sins mm-hmm. and then he says the righteous for the unrighteous yeah and you can actually um you can actually translate um that once for all which which also has that same sense in the book of hebrews that it's not it's a one it's a one and done thing um you know the 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 classic roman catholic doctrine of the mass is that christ is continually offered up on the altar as an unbloody sacrifice but um, you know, it's really important to emphasize this is a once and done thing. It is finished. Universal atonement. And he didn't die just for the elect, but for all sinners of all times and all places. And he is the righteous one who dies for us unrighteous ones, which also sounds a lot like Romans 5, where Paul talks about, you know, while we were while we were weak, Christ died. God died for us while we were God's enemies. He died for us. Um, the and, and we just came out of uh, not too long ago. Uh, Good Friday and the entire Lenten season and those great Lutheran chorales about the passion of Christ always 
heavily emphasize the fact that he's the one, the righteous one, the holy one dying there in the place of me as an unholy, unrighteous sinner. So Christ suffered once. Peter, mm-hmm. although he was the first pope, is not a Roman Catholic, as it turns out. <laughs> and and for all, Peter is also not a Calvinist. So, exactly. so Christ suffered once for sins. And I love that. The the righteous for the unrighteous ones. I mean, you get that that contrast. One right. stood in your place. You know, again, Romans five comes to mind where Paul talks about how death came to all through Adam yep. and then life through the one who is Christ. Yep. I mean, it's just, a, and then, as you said, drawing from Isaiah chapter 53, and we've seen Peter drawing from the book of Isaiah throughout yep. this epistle. He's constantly yep. founding his teaching on that word of God that he's been given. So Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is just one long sentence that he might bring us to God. There's some, I mean, this is the for you of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's a basically a purpose clause. Um, what what did he do all of this for? Well, to get us to the Father, which reminds us of Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says in John 14, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I've prepared a place for you, then I'm certainly going to come back and take you to be with me where I am. Um, also, John 17, words spoken you know, right before the passion of Christ, where how, how do you know uh, what is eternal life? Well, it's to know Jesus Christ and um, the one who's who, who the Father has sent so that he can take us to the Father. Hmm. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in in the spirit. Now we probably need to do a little bit of work with this because you've got the words flesh and spirit, which sometimes get used in different senses in the scriptures. When, when Peter says that Christ, again, he's the subject here. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What is, what is Peter saying? What isn't he saying? Take us into those words. Right. Yeah. So there's, um, of course, Paul, when he's contrasting flesh and spirit in his epistles, uh, is, is talking about the difference between our old Adam and the new man created in us by baptism. So, um, so there's this struggle going on, Romans 7, between our, our new man, our spirit, and then on the other hand, our flesh, our sinful part, um, our old Adam. Um, Jesus also uses similar language in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But uh, here, this is uh, the, the flesh here is a reference to his uh, physical body and, um, uh, you know, you would have to say his whole humanity, his body, in body and soul. That is, in his incarnation, he is, he is put to death, he dies, um, and, and of course his hum, human soul goes to be with the Father, his body goes into the tomb. But then um, he's made alive in the spirit means that he's raised up to life. Spirit oftentimes refers to, you know, the breath of life. So he's made alive again in body and soul. So the being and I think, it, you know, being put to death in the flesh is pretty straightforward. It's the made alive in the spirit that may cause a bit of pause. So when Peter says that Christ was made alive in the spirit, he's not saying that Christ's resurrection was anything less than physical. There's there's not a. Oh, sure. How, I mean, is that. Right. He's not he's not, for example, con, uh, he's not disagreeing with Paul elsewhere. No. And of course, the apostles who who all saw Jesus actual body. This is a matter of he was made alive in the spirit. This is just another way of saying Jesus was raised from the dead. Exactly. Yeah. Died. Rose. <laughs> OK. All right. So now let's try to I mean, our, our timeline here, because having just been in Holy Week, we're in the season of Easter. The, the timeline here, he, he suffered once for sins 
which I suppose that's, we, we kind of skipped over that. That's more than Good Friday, his suffering for sins, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So um, there's, of course, his active obedience and his passive obedience. And so he he bears our sorrows and, and sufferings in this life um, all as, uh, well, as, as one of the early church fathers said, that which he did not assume, he did not redeem. So he really takes upon himself everything necessary to save us, uh, including our sufferings uh, leading up to his death, uh, and, and then his active obedience of fulfilling the law in our place. So, yeah. so suffering includes other things, but it certainly has Good Friday when he's put to death. Then you get made alive, the resurrection. Now we're thinking Sunday, and this is where yep. the timeline, we start to wonder where exactly we are. Because right. verse 19... Peter says, in which, so again, he's been raised from the dead, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And we enter into, well, I'll let you say what Luther calls a confusing text. <laughs> yeah, Luther says, this is a strange text and certainly more obscure than any other passage in the New Testament. <laughs> so let's acknowledge, first of all, that it is it is not... Uh, you know, the simplest text to, to understand. Um, but I think that we allow Scripture to ins- interpret Scripture. And so by by situating this passage in the context of several others, we can say that this is a reference to the descent into hell, that these, these spirits that are in prison who had at once disobeyed, um, and he says he's going to introduce the days of Noah, I think most of all to push, push us towards the, the, um, correlation between baptism and the ark. So he cho- he made a decision, a conscious decision there. But I think he's, he's, Jesus is descending in body and soul to proclaim victory over the, uh, the damned in hell and over Satan. Um, this is the classic teaching of the, uh, what the descent into hell that we refer to in the apostles creed means. Now we need to fill it out with passages from other places um, in, in the in the scriptures, but this is this all um, is part of the, the Christus Victor motif of Christ as the, the victorious one. And I would I always like to teach that the descent into hell and the resurrection from the tomb are basically two sides of the same coin. So temporally we know that Jesus had to on Holy Saturday rest in the tomb for the entire day. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten to the third day. So his resurrection has to occur on the third day. But, and this is where we, we don't have any, you know, we can't, we can't investigate this empirically, but at some point, in some way, Christ in body and soul, before he came out of the tomb, descended into hell to proclaim victory over death, the grave, Satan, and hell. And then after that, he burst forth from the tomb to announce the same message, except outwardly to the world. They're, they're two sides of the same message, right? Defeat of hell and Satan and life, victory, and the promise of heaven. Does that make sense? It does. And I've, I've often, and you can tell me what you think of this, I've often connected this then also to the ascension of Jesus. So if, if, you, if you, for a moment in here in 1 Peter 3, skip over the part about baptism and keep with what Christ is doing. You get his suffering, his death, yeah. the resurrection, the descent into hell. And then the, the mention of the resurrection again being, okay, now he's announcing it here on earth. And then he ascends into heaven such that Christ announces his victory and proves himself victorious everywhere in hell right. on earth. And then now seated at the right hand of God reigning over all things. I, I find it helpful to put all three of those events together 
such that Christ's resurrection it proves that he is Lord over absolutely everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as he had announced right before he, well, he announced in Matthew 28, all right. authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, yeah. and, and Paul, I think in Romans 10, is, it, you know, gets at this too, um, when he co- talks about Christ being the one who, who descended into the abyss and then also, you know, came up again. So, uh, no, I like that very much. So you mentioned, uh, just with a couple minutes here on this side of the break, that this is not the only passage that talks about Christ's descent into hell. I think you just mentioned Romans 10 is another one that gives a reference. What are some other places in the scriptures that teach us about Christ's descent into hell? Well, um, you know, I, I think the spatial descent is is one that, I, I mean, we're not, let's not focus so much on space, but let's talk, let's focus more on victory. And so there's the, in Luke 11, the binding of the stronger man, right? And then there's Jesus in John 12 when he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. When I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So I think that's very clearly a, a, a defeat of Satan theme. Um, let's see. Uh, you've also got Genesis 3.15 uh, that mm-hmm. the seed is going to crush Satan underfoot. Uh, and so hell represents it's difficult conceptualizing heaven and hell because, well, you know, where are they exactly, right? We're, we're limited by these kind of, you know, 3D physicalist conceptions in our own lives. But um, wherever and in whatever realm these things are, um, you know, Christ is victorious over, over, over Satan and, and hell. And so that is taught in other places in the scripture. We're going to keep talking about Christ's descent into hell as 1 Peter 3 brings it up here on Sharp Iron, but we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Pastor Carl Roth. Take us through 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, April 19th. We're studying 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. We have Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Carl Roth, before the break, we were looking at the descent into hell. Just a few more. Make sure we, we're on the same page here because it is sort of an obscure thing. As Luther said, this is a difficult passage. Where does this show up in our confessions? And and again, just help us to, to grasp what exactly is going on here in Christ's descent into hell. Yeah, so we, we confess this every, hopefully every morning when we say the Apostles' Creed, every evening when we go to bed, sometimes in church. Um, he descended into hell. So what does this mean? And this is this is specifically addressed in Formula of Concord, Article 9, the descent of Christ to hell. And I'll quote just a little bit here. Uh, we simply believe that the entire person, God and man, descended into hell after the burial, conquered the devil, destroyed hell's power, 
and took from the devil all his might. We should not, however, trouble ourselves with high and difficult thoughts about how this happened. With our reason and our five senses, this article can be understood as little as the preceding one about how Christ is placed at the right hand of God's almighty power and majesty. We are simply to believe it and cling to the word. All of the articles of our Christian faith are mysteries. They're, they're re- revealed to us by the clear word of God. Uh, we delight in them, we rejoice in them, we confess them, but we do not need to trouble ourselves with, um, you know, scrutinizing them. We actually shouldn't. The Lord actually never tells us to try to figure out how all this stuff works. Rather, we are to rejoice in it and worship the God who's done all these things for us. Mm-hmm. So Christ, when he descended into hell, did not descend there to suffer. His suffering was ended on the cross, and Peter's talked about his suffering. He goes to hell, rather, to proclaim his victory there and to establish it. Uh, Sometimes I've likened it to a a victory parade. You know, I mean, after after a team wins a championship, you have a, a... a parade in the in the city where they win, yep. and and even yep. in the ancient world, and you might know more about this than me. You probably do. The, in the ancient world, this is how a conquering king would come back. There would be a a victory parade right. in over to show where he'd won. Absolutely, I've I've also um, preached on this text as as a you know a victory parade as well. So I, I really like to to characterize it in those terms. Again, it's a mystery. And and so it, it it but but I think we have we have some room for maybe rhetorical embellishment to drive home the point of what really happened there. And and so I want to quote briefly from Luther's sermon on this. He says, "Christ went to hell with his banner in hand as a victorious hero, and he tore down its gates and charged into the midst of the devils, throwing one through the window and another out the door." So uh, you know, our Lord is a, a, a as as the Old Testament reveals our Lord is is a conqueror. Uh, he fights for his people. And it just happens that in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus does not serve as a military commander over the kingdoms of this world, but he is the one who takes care of the bigger enemy, the kingdom of the realm of Satan. And um, just to, to tie in with one other verse here uh, from Colossians chapter 1, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is all about what domain are you in? What realm are you in? And the descent of Christ into hell assures us that hell has no power over us. As you were talking about with Luther's sermon there, I was reminded of the the song of Moses and Miriam in Exodus chapter 15. The descent into hell is, is almost akin to that after the the armies of Pharaoh have been washed away in the, the Red Sea. That's what Christ is doing here in his descent into hell. And that, that washing that happens in the Red Sea, I, I suppose, you know, Peter could have chosen that one, but he chose Noah instead yeah. to, to yeah. get to, to get to baptism for us. So as you said, he could have chosen, I suppose, any of the spirits in prison, but he specifically singles out those in the days of Noah. It yeah. seems so that he can move us toward baptism. So help us through how Peter takes this descent of Christ into hell and then begins to preach baptism of all things. Yeah, well, um, so so he transitions from mentioning the spirits from the days of Noah um, when the ark was being built, and then he says that there's a few, that is, eight persons who were saved through water, and then he's going to make that a point of comparison to baptism. So let's dwell on that for a minute. 
Um, it's a little uncomfortable for us to talk about as Lutherans sometimes because we want to boldly confess that Christ died for all, and he justified the entire world in his death and resurrection. But he's also the same Lord who said, many are called and few are chosen. And he said, broad and easy is the road that leads to destruction, but, you know, narrow is the way that leads to life. So, um, and, and when, you know, he doesn't want us to try to figure out how many are going to be saved. As the one, the guy says to Jesus, well, uh, how many are going to be saved? He's like, well, that's, you know, you enter through the narrow door, right? That's not really your concern. So, but, but he, he does say many are called fewer chosen. Um, we see the people of God in the Old Testament reduced to very small numbers, uh, for example, in the time of Elijah. Um, so, uh, and, and, and this is a pattern that has repeated itself again and again throughout the Old Testament. And so I wanted to caution us against the theology of glory that would place an emphasis on us being able to somehow grow the church and make it glorious and spectacular and triumphant in this world. When, in fact, the, the littleness of the church is oftentimes emphasized in the scriptures and the persecution and suffering of the church. So uh, we're not called as Christians to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And we are going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to work faith in people's hearts when and where it pleases him. And it might very well be that we're living through a period of time in the United States and in the Western world in general when the church will will de- will shrink, will decline, will become smaller in number, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to become smaller in faith. Hmm. Uh, you can't measure faith. You can't measure. You can't measure what's going on inside of people's hearts, and um, and we leave it up to the Lord to to do the fighting for us. Uh, and we rejoice to see the gospel producing great fruits in many other parts of the world today, and even on our own soil. But we also do not want to be captivated by uh, a theology of glory that would imply we're going to be able to build the church ourselves. Mm. Peter, of course, being the one <laughs> upon whom Jesus says the, uh, his confession will be the one upon whom the, the church will be built uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, um, actually – reminds us of this when he says it's a it's a little group of people saved by the water here. Hmm. It's a, it's interesting that you you bring that up. The, the number 8 I think is significant that it is 8 because literally it was 8 people that were on the ark. Right. You have Noah and his three sons and then their wives that are there. So there are literally 8 people. It is a small number. The, the number 8 is often used scripturally and still in the church as a number of new creation. It's it's yeah. not, an, not an accident. You know, I mean, think of the, the eighth day being the day of Jesus' resurrection. When it comes to the matter of the number of, of people, of course, as you said, we can't know. But anytime the scriptures do give you know these numbers, like eight that were on the ark, or I'm thinking of uh, Revelation chapter seven, where it's 144,000 that are numbered, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the point isn't that we would count, but I think rather the right. point is that the Lord has counted and he knows. He yeah. knows exactly who is a part of his church, and he's not going to let those sheep of his slip out of his hand. And, and so the the point is to be found among that number yeah. in the faith. And and yet at the same time, you mentioned Elijah, and there in Revelation 2, I think, you know, certainly it's few, but on the other hand, it's also more than we expected. You know, Elijah thought that he was the only one left. And so yeah. when the Lord tells him, what is it? Is it 7,000, I 7, think? 7,000. Yeah. yeah. So when the Lord tells him there's 7,000 left, Elijah's eyes must have got, whoa, I didn't realize it was that yeah. many, you yeah. know? Right. And in the book of Revelation, after you get the 144,000 numbered, then yeah. John looks and he sees a countless multitude. He can't you know? count them. Right. Yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah. I think that that cautions us against trying to number and rather just simply, as you said, be faithful to what the Lord yeah. has given. I mean, and the 144,000 is fascinating because it's a thousand times 12 times 12. So you've got 12 representing the Old Testament people of God, the 12 representing the New Testament people of God multiplied together times a thousand. And so it's a symbolic number indicating that all of God's church is going to be saved. The wholeness of it is. And 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 as you point out, he's, he sees the vision that it's without number. We can't count them. So it's not given to us to worry about. Now, I'd also comment with the the eight. Um, there's this beautiful connection to baptism because um, at least our church, and, and I think this is traditional in many places, uh, the, the baptismal font is eight-sided to show us that we are baptized into a new day. Uh, you know, seven days of the old creation, but Christ baptized into him on the eighth day, the, the, the eternal Easter day. We are a new creation in him. And, and, and so that leads well into us talking about baptism. Sure. So Peter concludes the account of Noah, these eight people, they were brought safely through water and there's the hook. And then he says, and, and if I can do it with the, the plain grammar, he says, baptism now saves you, period. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, our church sign uh, out front, out front of us, uh, Highway Two Ninety here. Um, we used to be able to change out the message, and and it was, but you couldn't put a lot of words on it, right? It had to be relatively few words. So anyway, one week I had one of my elders put up, "Baptism now saves you." First Peter three twenty one, and I had somebody uh, leave a voicemail at church, and and, and he said, "I I'm uh, infuriated by that sign that you put up because baptism does not save you." Baptism symbolizes our salvation, or baptism, you know, suggests that we're saved or represents that we're saved. But no, it says in the text, baptism now saves you. Um, uh, so, you know, this is one that that's a tough one for those who um, reject baptismal regeneration to get around, uh, and so they end up having to, to contort themselves in all sorts of ways, and you know, say is doesn't mean is, and. You know, saves doesn't mean saves, it means represents. And um, it's it's just, you can't get around it. Um, Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, Jesus says. Um, and, you know, I love how Luther in the large catechism emphasizes that um, it's not that the water's what saves you, right? I mean, it's the word of God attached to the water, which delivers to us the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection, indeed unites us with Christ's death and resurrection. And the baptism is an objective sign and seal that we're able to point to and say, I know I'm saved because I am baptized into Christ, as we sing in the hymn, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. So um, the reason baptism saves is because of the grace of God and the Spirit of God working through it to deliver to us the gift of salvation. I think you, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it earlier, but it is, as Peter's talking here, it is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is what the horsepower. That's it, the horsepower. The horsepower. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the horsepower of baptism is the death and resurrection of Jesus that is, is put into the water. I, I think it was Luther had a fantastic sermon on the baptism of Jesus where he, he mm -hmm. gives the, the picture of Jesus putting himself in the water of baptism yeah. for you so that you go in and, and when you come out, that's who you have. You have Christ yeah. and all of his gifts. clothed in Christ. Yeah, clothed in Christ. Yeah, I mean, he uses all these wonderful images. I mean, he'll, he'll say sometimes, you know, like you should look at the water and, and picture it as rosy red because the blood of Christ mm -hmm. is mingled in it. Mm -hmm. um, other times he'll emphasize the white robe of righteousness of Christ that's placed upon us, but... Um, we should do everything we can to extol the wonders and glories of baptism and the, and the, and the benefits here. It's not about the water. 
which washes you in the shower every morning. Although taking a shower, taking a bath, that's a really good time to remember that you're baptized. Every time you, every time you encounter water, you know, you should, you should think that's a reminder of my baptism. But what does baptism do? Peter goes on to say, it gives me um, a pledge of a good conscience toward God. Um, or, or as the ESV puts it, an, an, an appeal to God for a good conscience. So um, what, is, uh, what is this stuff about conscience, Pastor Apple? Well, that's what I was going to ask you, Pastor Roth, here, the guest. What, what, <laughs> when the scriptures talk about the conscience, what, what should we understand? I think in our American context, we, we maybe hear Jiminy Cricket singing, let your conscience yeah. be your guide. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. No, not at all. I also actually have pointed out numerous times in sermons that uh, let your conscience be your guide is not necessarily good advice. If your conscience has been informed and guided and shaped by the Word of God, then yes, indeed. But in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, people reduce conscience to more or less uh, what makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, um, so here, conscience has to do with um, my sense of guilt as I stand in God's courtroom. Um, and and my sense of whether or not God is pleased with me or whether he's going to punish me, he's angry with me. Um, Satan loves to dirty our conscience and convince us, try to convince us that, you know, there's no way a real Christian could have done that. There, you know, you've you've lost the faith. You've abandoned the faith. Um, and and so so Satan is constantly trying to get into our conscience, accuse us of our sins. And, and he's, he's got a point. We are sinners. So he's got a lot of evidence to rub in our face, but a good conscience comes from being washed in the blood of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, um, recognizing that we are forgiven, we are justified, and so Satan, we can tell him, get lost. You know, I, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Drop your ugly accusation as we sing in the hymn. I've been baptized into Christ. So the, the good conscience that baptism gives me, again, it's not that washing of dirt from my body, but it is showing me that in God's presence, I am now clothed with Christ's righteousness, that no accusation against me can stand in his courtroom. And I, I stand before him with a good conscience. Am I a sinner? Yes, but I am a forgiven sinner yeah. covered in Christ's righteousness. That's the good conscience that I have before God. Whereas an unbeliever constantly has a bad conscience before God. Right. Every Everything pricks him, which I mean, I think that... That plays into a lot of what Peter has been saying about the good conduct of a Christian in an unbelieving world that's persecuting. You used the the quotation, I think it's from Proverbs, and Paul picks it up in Romans 12 about heaping burning coals, mm-hmm. right? That's the, that's the bad conscience at work in an unbeliever. They see the behavior of a Christian or the, hear the words of a Christian, and that it, it, it hits their conscience because they know they have a bad conscience. Yeah. Yeah. And Christians don't have that. We have a good conscience, one that is forgiven. Exactly. And it is it is striking because, you know, you can rebuke through words or you can rebuke through actions. And when you behave in a certain way as a Christian, it, it does. It does poke and prod that conscience, which off. I mean, I think you can see then why the, the reaction is often so strong um, against Christianity, um, because it 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 points out the grave failures of secularism, of humanism, of all these other isms out there. Uh, that they they are not following in the path of the crucified one who lo- who said that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And of course, what what brings about the good conscience? Well, it it isn't sort of fixing it on our own, but it is mm-hmm. that death and resurrection of Jesus 
given to you in holy baptism. That's the that's the good conscience. That's where it comes from. It's not by by my my fixing myself. I mean, sometimes sometimes the the conscience is pricked just after church on a Sunday morning. You're sure. still wearing your clerical, and you run into someone that was not in church that really should have been. You know what what is it that that gives them a good conscience? It's not the oh you better be in church next Sunday, but it's that. Jesus died for people who didn't go to church too. That's that's mm-hmm. the good conscience. That's where it comes from. Sure. Yeah. Um, although it could also be, you know, preceded by, um, well, you know, the third commandment does remind sure. us to remember sure. the Sabbath and so on. But, you know, yeah, Jesus died for that sin too, of neglecting his word. And so all the more reason to come to church next week. That's right. To have that good conscience strengthened yeah. in the death yeah. and resurrection of Jesus. So, I mean, you really, you really will get this from people sometimes who have been away from the church for a long time, who actually have this sense that if they walk, if they set foot in the church, lightning's going to strike. Um, you know, it's because they they have a genuinely bad conscience, and probably also because churches haven't always done the best job of saying that the church is a place for forgiveness. Right. Um, rather, it's this kind of club for holy people. And you know, um, Pharisaical, self-righteous people. Um, now we always want to make sure that um, uh, the the church is the place with doors open, as the prodigal son's father had had his doors open, looking out, waiting for people to return. That's right, watching for them to return, running to meet yeah. them when they do. Yes. Yeah. So Peter then, after having talked about baptism, which is, I just love this, now he returns to that that journey that Jesus took, he picks back up with the resurrection of Jesus and then goes into the ascension. So we've got about yeah. nine minutes here to talk about Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Let's just start. What is What does Peter say about those two things? So um, um, his resurrection and then his ascension. So um, um, clearly burst forth from the tomb, and he, he doesn't mention those 40 days after Easter in which Jesus dwelt among his disciples. So that's that's not something that he's going to mention. And we don't mention that in the creed either, do we? Um, you know, those those are the things that are important as we study the scriptures. But when we're trying to summarize our faith, um, oh, you know, by the way, I, I, I didn't mention Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as another creed, that sure. Christ died for our sins. Right. When I, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, Christ died for our sins, was buried, and so on. That's, that's just the heart and soul of the Apostles' Creed as well. Um, so, but, but he, you know, there, Paul doesn't talk about the 40 days after either. So, um, so Christ, so Paul, uh, Peter here is kind of just moving past, um, from resurrection then to the ascension. Um, so he takes us all the way to Luke, you know, the end of Luke 24, the beginning of Acts one. And so then he's gone up into heaven and he then uses language similar to what Paul does in Ephesians two and four when he talks about angels and authorities and powers subordinated to him under his feet, um, which really sounds a lot like um, in the Psalms, um, you know, that he's going to put all enemies under his feet. Hmm. So with, with Jesus' ascension, and we're coming up on that in May, I think sometimes the ascension of Jesus is one of the neglected feast days in the church here. Peter, as you said, spends quite a bit of time talking about it here. Contextually, I think the fact, as you said, that all of this has been subjected to Christ or subordinated to him is pretty important, given what Peter has said about Christians subjecting themselves to in, in various stations and the role of suffering in the Christian life. The fact that it, it still is all under subjection to Christ should be a great comfort to us. Help us into the ascension of Jesus. Why is it such an important 
event in our Lord's ministry for us as Christians? Well, I did allude earlier to John 14, where Jesus speaks of going and preparing a place for us. So we do, you know, associate the ascension of Jesus to that event as well. Um, But what I really want to emphasize here is that the ascension of Jesus does not mean that he has left us. And, And this is very clear. If he is still exercising authority over angels, authorities, and powers in this world, and like to go back to 1 Peter 2, that you were straying like sheep, but now you literally have been returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. That's language of presence. So, you know, he's, he's, we've been returned to him. There's no separation between me and Christ. Um, among some, you know, quarters of Christianity, there's a notion that Christ has ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit more or less to replace him here in the world. Jesus is no longer, you know, really with us, even though he said, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But um, no, Jesus ascends into heaven to fill all things, and he's able to actually extend his presence wherever he wants as a consequence of, of his, his, uh, his exaltation. Um, so so I, I think the ascension should be a celebration of Christ with us, um, that yes, he does go to prepare a place for us in heaven, but that doesn't mean he's left us. It means he's filled all things and now is able to be with his church, wherever two or three have been gathered in his name, we're literally buried with him in his death and raised up to newness of life with him in our resurrect in, in our baptism. Um, Christ speaks through the minister to absolve the penitents, and he comes and gives us his very body and blood given and shed for our, for the forgiveness of our sins, and he dwells in us and we dwell in him. So um, that's one of the things that I really try to emphasize is that the ascension doesn't mean Jesus has left the building. It means he's still here with us, except that his his presence and power has filled all things and rules over all things. So when we talk about the horsepower of baptism, we should probably include Jesus' ascension in that as well. Yeah. I mean, thinking about, you know, in the what's sometimes called the Great Commission there at the end of Matthew 28, which I, I think we should probably call the Great Promise, because of what he says before and after he actually says to do something. He says, first, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then at the end, I am with you always yeah. to the end of the age. What's right there in the middle? It's it's baptism yep. and it's teaching. And and what gives baptism that horsepower? Well, Jesus reigns as, as our brother in heaven. He sits at the right hand of God, which is not to say something about his physical location, to say, say something about his authority, his power, his ability to do all these things that he has promised, even in his, his we can't see him like, like you and I could see each other, but he is still very much with us. The other reflections on the ascension of Jesus here is we've got about three and a half minutes left. Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, to, to emphasize, um, and not to be polemical, but to, to point out that, um, something that our, some of our Protestant brothers and sisters who don't believe in the sacramental presence of Christ with this church, um, something that they just simply miss out on is that comfort of knowing that Jesus is with us and, and that he's, he, he's, it's not merely that he's, he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can then become Christ for the world or something like that and, and take over the world and reign here in the world. Um, I, I, you know, you can go in, in some very negative directions by project, reject, forgetting the fact that he is with us, that he's the one fighting for us, and that we we are supposed to, to have a life um, relieved, free of anxiety. Um, we're set free from worry about the, the troubles of this life so that we can focus on loving God and loving our neighbor. Um, so I, I think that there's some tremendous gifts that are being neglected 
um, by those who would, um, you know, remove Christ's presence among us and, and think that we maybe need to be more responsible for building the kingdom of God than we are. Uh, he, he, of course, did say to Peter, um, upon this rock, I will build my church. So it's the word and sacraments that are going to do it. And then in the midst of a world that is very chaotic, politically, yeah. economically, socially, things seem totally out of control. I think Christ's ascension provides a great comfort for us living in that kind of world. About a minute left. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Because um, the, the, the dominant philosophy um, and, and sense of, of perceiving the world um, over the last several hundred years has been materialist and focused on just the stuff of this world and, and forgetful of the principalities and powers and demons and Satan and, and, the, and the angels and, and the spirit. Um, there's this battle going on around us. And, and uh, we as Christians are able to, to view through the scriptures um, through, you know, behind the scenes so that we can actually see what's going on. Um, and that it is not merely this materialist world that we can kind of manipulate and change at, as our whim. And we're not, it's not our responsibility to win the victory. Christ is fighting for us. He's our champion. He's got, he's got authority over everything. So he just wants us to rejoice in him, do what we can with the little piece of land that he's, you know, in the, in the, in the, little, in the family and friends and church that he's put us around and, and trust that he's, he's in control. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. share is coming up this week, April 22nd through 24th. We would love for you to partner with us at KFUO to share Christ for you anytime, anywhere to the entire world. April 22nd through 24th. Tune in for Sherathon 2021. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.